So, uh, good morning again, everyone. We're going to uh, pray in just a moment, and um, uh, Gene Hurley was just taken out with shortness of breath and, and uh, some distress and stuff, and so um, they're taking care of him, but I, he's, he's either going home or, I don't know, the ER or whatnot, so I want to pray for him uh, right now. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we uh, come to you because we trust you, because you are sovereign God of all things, and you, uh, you made Gene's body, and you know how it works, and you can fix it uh, in a moment. And so we bring our brother to you and pray that you would bless him and, uh, and Sarah as they are um, deciding what to do with him as he's dealing with, uh, with shortness of breath and, and um, distress and whatnot. I, I pray, Lord, that you would bless his body. I pray that you'd bless his, his heart. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would uh, heal him of what ails him and, uh, and help him to recover. I pray that if he needs medical attention, he would get it and get excellent medical attention quickly. And his body would respond well. Father, we um, pray for your blessing on him. Father, we, we really are dependent upon you. We're dependent upon you for the next breath that we draw, for the next beat of our heart, for the next conversation we have to wake up in the morning. We are dependent upon you. And so uh, we, we submit ourselves to you and we, we rejoice that you are good and faithful. We rejoice that you are loving. We rejoice that you care for us. And we find, uh, we find great comfort in coming to you with these things and not, uh, not being distressed, not being uh, left on our own to solve things. We come to you and we ask for your work. And we ask for your work in Gene's situation. And we ask for your work this morning as we are dependent upon you for heart change, for life change. We're dependent upon you this morning and, and upon your grace. And so as we turn to your word, as we turn to this historical discussion, we ask that you would work in us in ways that only you can, that you by your spirit would work in our hearts, that, that you would bring life where there is not life, and that you would bring change where there needs to be change, and you would bring joy where there was no joy. So, Father, we ask that you would work during this time. I pray that you would help us to set aside things that we're concerned about. We, we have entrusted Gene to you, and, uh, and our worrying about him now will not solve it, will not uh, make things better, nor will our worrying about situations in our lives make things better. So for the next few minutes, help us to focus on you and to think about you and to receive from your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys know uh, very well the uh, well-known quote. It's sometimes misquoted, but uh, as I understand it, this is the way the quote actually goes, that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And uh, so that was uh, the, the uh, early 20th century Spanish philosopher George Santayana who said that. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so uh, there, there's also a lesser-known quote that I find entertaining as well. History repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. <laughs> right? So that was uh, Steve Turner. I don't know anything else about Steve Turner except that line right there. <laughs> it was good. Why are we discussing an historical topic on a Sunday morning? We are Parkside Bible Fellowship. We are not Parkside History Fellowship. Right? And so we preach the Bible. We do preach the Bible and we will get to the, uh, the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, but we've, we've taken this time, this part of the year, this, this part of this year, we've taken the time to look at Reformation issues, 
Because it's the 500th anniversary of really what kicked off the Reformation, Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of the church there in Wittenberg, and uh, which kind of started the debate, which was a big, big deal. And this is 500 years ago, so we're going to uh, remember those things. But it's not just celebrating history. There are a lot of historical uh, events that that could have been, uh, that we could celebrate or whatever. But this is crucial stuff. We're talking about really the recovery of the gospel. If you think about the theology that was going on, the, the, the preaching, the teaching, the writing, what was being believed during the, uh, this, this medieval period in the Roman Catholic Church, which was the only game in town, you, you see that there was um, a real lack, a real shift in the gospel. The gospel was no longer understood in uh, New Testament terms. It was it had had changed to such a degree that people were under slavery so that as we let, read last week that Luther could could be angry at God for the gospel which was another form of enslavement as Luther saw it in his Catholic days. It was another form of enslavement because because now God offers this grace, you just have to just do your little part. Well, I can't do my little part, Luther realized. And so he saw even the gospel as another form of enslavement on top of the law, and it just blew his mind. And so that, that was kind of the context. And so the uh, the Reformation was sort of a rediscovery, a rethinking about these different areas that have to do specifically with the gospel. It's not just historical stuff that we're talking about. It's gospel stuff that we're talking about. These are, these are central and crucial topics. And so we have our banners up here, and today we're going to be talking about sola gratia, sola gratia over here, uh, grace alone. And, um, and so really when we talk about sola gratia, we're, we're we're answering a question, and the, the answer to the question is sola gratia. What's the question? Grace alone, by grace alone. But what's the question that's being answered? Well, the question really that's being answered is, what's the reason for our salvation? Or, in other words, on what basis do we receive salvation? And the answer is, by grace alone. Pretty simple, right? I mean, I shouldn't need 40... 45 minutes to explain that, right? Except that, uh, that we, as we really dig down into this, we really start thinking about what the reasons for our salvation are or on, on what basis we receive it, particularly in the context, the theological context of the, the medieval Roman Catholic Church. We can see some things really stand out and become important issues of discussion that, uh, that are worth our time this morning. And so it is worth it for us to focus on these things. And in fact... Peter tells us that even angels long to look into these things. The gospel is worth thinking about. The gospel is worth being clear on. The gospel is worth asking questions of so that you get a better understanding of what is and is not being said. And so, um, again, the Reformation happens within the the context of the medieval, medieval Roman Catholic Church. And they believed in grace. They taught grace. Grace was everywhere. So it was a word that they used a lot, but I'm, I'm quoting here from, uh, from a, a book called Reformation Theology, speaking on this issue. Of course, everyone believed in the necessity of grace, faith, and Christ, but free will must cooperate with grace, and faith must become love expressed through good works in order to be justifying. And to the merits of Christ, one must add his or her own merits, as well as those of Mary and the saints. To be sure, God receives the glory for making all this possible, but he does not receive all the glory because salvation comes to those who do what lies within them, 
as the Counter-Reformation taught. And so that's kind of the context that we find ourselves in. That They use these words. It's the sola part that was difficult for them. They believed in grace and they believed in faith and they believed in Christ, but not alone. Not alone. And so we have some additions going on. So we're going to look a little bit at the historical discussion and then try and get quickly to, uh, to our Bible passage from Ephesians chapter 2. But first of all, let's look at the Roman Catholic context. Now there were, there were several ways that this question was being answered. Uh, what's the reason for our salvation or on what basis do we receive salvation? And the first one, which was the most optimistic when it comes to its understanding of human nature, was the Via Moderna we talked about, which was kind of a newer way of thinking. And it, was, uh, it influenced Luther early on uh, before uh, 1517. And that was the idea that uh, God will not deny grace to anyone who does what lies within him. God will not deny grace to anyone who does what lies within him. In there is the kernel of the idea that you have the seed, the spark of good within you. And if you will just respond positively to that seed, to that spark, if you will just move towards God in that sense, God won't deny you grace. So this was the medieval Roman Catholic concept called the the Via Moderna, the, the, the modern way of understanding grace. So there's grace in there. But you kind of need to fan it to flame because it's, it's inherent in you. It's inborn into you because man is basically good, right? That's, that's kind of that thought. Well, that, that was definitely not the, the majority view. That was kind of a, a smaller view. The majority view in the church was that grace was a necessary part of the salvation process from beginning to end. But the, the way that one was able to access that grace was by penance. So grace was essential for the whole piece. And how did you access that grace? Well, there's only one requirement, and that was your own penance. The things that you would do, whether it was the Hail Marys or whether it was the, the uh, pilgrimage-type things or, or other things like that, you had to do some form of penance to access that grace. So it was available out there, and you accessed it by your penance. All right? So it's, it's something that you do, something that you do to add to it, to uh, get access to it. Right? And frankly, um, at first blush, it sounds like it's not too far off the mark. Like you can kind of... Yeah, well, you know, and, and there may be some of us who kind of think in these terms that salvation is by grace. It's out here. It's accessible. I just have to do this thing to get to it. Maybe it's penance. Maybe it's something else, right? God, by his grace, accomplishes the building except for the final piece of making it your own, of applying it to you. That's kind of what the Catholic doctrine of the day was. It was a typical view of the Roman Catholic uh, church at the time. If sinners acted in certain ways, then God would respond to them accordingly by giving the infused grace. Remember that we talked about before that was like a healing balm that kind of healed you and made you function properly the way you should so that you could respond rightly to God. That was the idea of what grace was. It kind of changed you, kind of fixed you. It was a substance that God poured in you that kind of fixed you and, uh, and helped you be able to uh, respond to God. And there was a man named, uh, named Erasmus of Rotterdam, a Dutch Roman Catholic priest and a, and a humanist at the time, who uh, he spoke of man having a power of the human will by which a man can apply himself to the things which lead to eternal salvation or turn away from them. So in... in in Erasmus's view, which was not atypical of the church at the time, the, the, you have power by human will 
to apply yourself to the things that will lead you to eternal salvation or not, right? So the, the driver's seat is kind of right here, right? So again, if you, uh, if you listen to the radio, if you read Facebook, if you uh, read many, many uh, evangelical books today, that's about what you'll hear. And this was the Roman Catholic position. This was what Erasmus taught. And he wrote a book on the topic called Freedom of the Will. And, uh, and we're going to see that Luther is going to address that in a little bit. But the idea is that God makes his overtures and man in his turn responds to those and thus receives eternal life or does not respond to those and thus receives eternal damnation. Right? God makes his move and the way you respond to it, the power of your own choice and human will was, was what was being held on to, was what was being grasped. What does that sound like? If you think about that, that doesn't sound too strange, too odd from what you might hear on the radio, you might see on Facebook, you might read in the typical evangelical uh, book or magazine. If magazines still exist, I don't even know if they do. (laughs) But that was the Roman Catholic teaching. And we're going to see today, we're going to see how the uh, reformers responded against this teaching and in the different ways that they did. Because there are kernels of truth in there and there are kernels of things that are, that are entirely gospel destroying that are in there. And so for the reformers, this was a very important topic, right? But in the Roman Catholic context, man had the decisive role by the use of his free will to decide for or against God. Here's the driver's seat right here. And so that's the Roman Catholic context, right? Well, Luther responded to that. Luther had read the, uh, the freedom of the will by, uh, by, by Erasmus, and, and he kind of didn't respond to it for a while. And people were like, Luther, why aren't you responding? Did he, did he out-argue you and you can't respond to him? We know you believe differently than him. Did he defeat you? And Luther's, a, you know, he said, basically, I was kind of waiting for him to write something better. Like that, that's all he had, right? And so Erasmus was a very, very brilliant man, and he was an excellent communicator, He's the kind of guy you just love to read. Like whatever you're reading, you just love to read because he was such a good orator. He was such a good, so, so good at communicating himself. And so, uh, but Luther had read that and he finally responded, not, not too long after, but, but uh, by Luther standards, it was pretty slow, with his book that he called The Bondage of the Will. So Erasmus wrote The Freedom of the Will. Luther wrote The Bondage of the Will in response. And really he was basing his book on texts like Romans 8.8, 8, which says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Would it be honorable to God? Would it be pleasing to God for a man to choose God? Well, of course it would. But Paul says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Or Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What can a dead man offer? And so with, uh, with the answer to that is the dead man can offer nothing. And so Luther, thinking about those passages and many others, he finally responded, um, responded to, to Erasmus with his book, The Bondage of the Will, in which he really portrays the very pessimistic view that is in Scripture about the nature of man. How good is man? We've, we, we talked about Romans chapter 3 last week and a little bit the week before we've looked at that. What does man have to offer? And so Luther said man has nothing to offer on his side. And actually, towards the end of his life, life Luther would say that uh, of all that he wrote, and he wrote a lot, of all that he wrote, he said, you, just, you can do what you want with the others, but these two must remain. They're the most important things I wrote. My catechism, catechism that he wrote to, to train people about the Christian faith and the bondage of the will. He said everything else... You know, you can, you can take it or leave it, but those two are the most important. The way Luther saw it, since the human will is bound by sin, 
a monergistic or a single-handed view of God is required in order for man to be saved. God has to act fully and completely, not just make overtures, or else nothing will be accomplished. If any peace is left up to the human will, which is so bound in sin, so turned inward upon itself, there would be no positive response to the gospel ever by anyone. And so for Luther, he said, no, it has to be all of grace. It has to be sola gratia, or else there is no gospel. And so those are, those are pretty harsh words. I mean, you don't, you don't hear that too often today. And when you do hear it, you probably hear it from Reformed circles. And Reformed theology traces its roots back to Calvin. But it's interesting to hear Luther talk that way. So Luther, who's kind of the root of Lutheranism, ends up talking the same way. And so um, you'll see later on that, that uh, the, the, the one who sort of inherited Luther, Lutheranism is Philip Melanchthon. And he, he kind of had a slightly different view. And he kind of moved back towards Erasmus on the free will concept. And they ended up, it caused a lot of problems within Lutheran circles. And then uh, towards, um, after that controversy, there was a, a uh, agreement that finally the Lutherans had to come together and say, well, which is it? Is it Luther and his bondage of the will, or is it Melanchthon and his, and his uh, brushing more towards freedom of the will? And they had to make a decision. And they kind of settled uh, back more towards Luther. But that's, that's Luther. It's kind of surprising that Luther would be the one to do that. But, but for him, it's clear that justification is sola gratia. It's by grace alone beginning to end. It's by grace alone. Not just grace Plus something. It's grace alone. Well, Calvin's response, Calvin came at it a little bit differently. Calvin, a couple of decades later, came at this a little bit differently. He agreed wholeheartedly with Luther on the idea of justification, sola gratia. But for him, the questions were a little bit different. For him, the question was, how does the human will relate to God's grace in justification? Because the human will is involved. But how is it involved? What is that relationship? And so that's kind of what Calvin uh, dove into there. And so he, uh, when, when you read Calvin on the topic, he's talking more about the relationship between the will and grace. And the question was a little bit different for Luther, though they come up with the same answer, essentially. And so this is the way Calvin looked at it. He said, the chief point on which the issue turns is whether this grace precedes or follows the human will. Or, to speak more plainly, whether it is given to us because of the fact that we will... Or whether through it, God also brings it about that we will. So uh, do we have access to it because we will that we have access to it? Or does God's grace actually move in us to will to choose it? The relationship between grace and the will, the sovereignty of God and the will is the big question for Calvin. And so for him, the answer was very clear that the human will does not obtain grace through its freedom but rather it obtains freedom through grace. That God draws sinners to himself and frees their will so that they can now choose God, whereas before they could not have. So God's sovereignty even works in the will of man. And that's the way Calvin looked at it. For Calvin, even faith itself is the gift of God. Paul says in Romans 10:17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ... And so for Calvin, the way faith was created in you was by the preaching of the Word. The Spirit of God used the Word of God to create faith in the people of God. And so that's how Calvin looked at it. Those are the kind of questions that he asked. And, and so for, for Calvin also, justification is sola gratia. It's by grace alone. 
from beginning to end in all of its parts. Justification is by grace alone. And so except for Melanchthon, who was the only major uh, reformer who who took a different view on this, the, the majority of the major reformers had this same view, which sounds very strange in our ears, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound different than what we're used to hearing? Don't, don't we usually hear, this is, the, this is the gift, I need to access it, I must do something to get there to make it my own? The Roman Catholic answer was penance could give you access to it. Melanchthon's answer, which was similar actually to to Erasmus's answer was, I must by my will choose it. And the answer of nearly every other major reformer was, no, it requires grace even for you to choose it. It requires the activity of God. And so that, that's kind of the way they, they looked at it. The, the uh, agreement amongst the reformers was that justification is sola gratia. Justification is solely the work of God's grace without any part being played by man. God must do it all or it will not be done, is the way they viewed it. So, so much for history. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2, if you're not already there. Ephesians chapter 2, and let's look at what the Bible says about that topic. They wrestled with big issues, right? And they spent, they spent their lives haggling over these things and other things, and this is important stuff. We're talking about the gospel. This isn't, you know, how many angels can you balance on the head of a pen? This is important stuff about how a person can be saved, and so the fact that they wrestled long and hard and thought long and hard about it is, uh, is a powerful thing. And something interesting about, about Calvin, you know, we, we uh, prayed for someone this week who has, who has migraines, and, and I, I've never had that. I, I don't understand. Calvin had a headache for 27 years, all the while banging his head against this stuff. You know, there, there was suffering that was going on there, all the while pastoring, all the while he was doing the things that he was doing. But that's the reformers, and that's the stuff the reformers thought. We, we're Parkside Bible Fellowship, not Parkside History Fellowship, and so we're going to uh, spend the rest of our time looking at Ephesians chapter 2 and looking at, first of all, this, this is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. The first three verses really break up into our contribution. What do we contribute? Now, that's the first three verses. So we're going to go ahead and read together, starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What's our contribution? We're dead. We don't, we don't contribute anything positive, right? We, we have some contributions. You know, we walked this way. We, you know, we follow, following evil influences, following the course of the world, following the devil, following the, the, the spirit uh, of this disobedient world. That's the part we play. That's where, that's where our passage starts with us, is we were dead and we were walking a certain way. We were following evil influences. We learn our values from the world. Right, this world is contrary to God. We learn our values. We make our decisions, make our decisions uh, based upon those values, and our interests, which drive those drives those decisions, our interests really uh, have to do with us, our personal interests. That's what we value the most. And it's maybe I value being nice, and so I'm going to be nice to you, or maybe I value whatever, and so get out of my way. But either way, it's what I value. That is the center of what we're going after. We're following evil influences, right? The, inf- the world teaches us to think that way. We go wholeheartedly after the world that way. It looks different in different people. 
Uh, but we participate in all sorts of evil and rebellion that this world has to offer. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and once you once walked, following the course of this world. And that was us. What the Lord desires never really enters into our thinking. Or if it does, it's like, how can I fit that into what I desire and kind of make them make them lock up together? How can I fit those two things together? We're following evil influences. And secondly, we're following our own passions. Look at, look at verse 3 there. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So it's not just that the world influences us to be a certain way. And so if you live in a nice culture, you'll be nice. If you live in a mean culture, you'll be mean. Those things are probably true. But it's not just the outside influence of the world. It's also the evil desires and the things that we have, our own passions that we have within us. It's within us. We're doing what we want to do and get out of my way. And so help you if you don't get out of my way. That's the world. That's the way we were all born. What it means, that's part of what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. We were born with certain desires. We were born with certain passions. And we talk in our Sunday school class about how sometimes those can be legitimate and then they can be raised to an illegitimate standard. Sometimes they're just illegitimate to begin with, but we have those things that come uh, from within us. And we may not have gone as wantonly into the most extreme fulfillment of those, those passions, but we've always obeyed them to the degree that we saw fit. We didn't submit ourselves to any other standard. We submitted ourselves to our own standard. We were in charge. We had our own passions that drove us. We were enslaved to our own desires and to our own lusts. And Jesus said in John 8, 34, that whoever practices sin is a slave of sin. That was us. That was us. Such is the condition of everyone from the time of of earliest life until the moment of salvation. Sin is master. The flesh is in charge. Shows itself in different ways, but those are the things that are true. So our second contribution, our first contribution is that we follow the leading of the world. The second contribution is that we lived in service to our own passions. So far, our account isn't looking so good. And thirdly, he says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. God's wrath is related to his holiness and his righteousness. And so when we offend His holiness, when we offend His righteousness, the natural response, the immediate, the necessary response is His wrath upon us. And it's just God's mercy that He doesn't execute it immediately. He withholds it. He withholds it. But we are deserving of His wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. It's not that we occasionally merited God's wrath when we did something bad. We were children of wrath. This described our nature. This described who we were. Deserving of God's wrath and awaiting it to come. We've already mentioned that those who are in such a a condition, uh, that rebellion is rooted deep down in in their sin nature. It's It's a part of who we are. It's a part of our flesh. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that word again, as we talked about in Sunday school, doesn't mean this. It talks about in our sinful nature, living according to our old man, being being in the flesh. In Romans chapter 8, talks about being unregenerate, talks about being not a Christian. So far, that's our condition before Christ. We've not contributed anything that would make us pleasing in God's sight. In fact, Romans 8, 8, we can't contribute anything that would make us pleasing in God's sight. Whatever that thing is you think that would make us pleasing in the flesh, you cannot contribute that thing. 
So we've talked about what it means to be dead. He starts off and says, you were dead in your trespasses. And he, he kind of defines it. It, it, uh, it means that we were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to the devil. We were enslaved to our own desires and lusts. Dead here means so committed to serving self and sin that there's no care given for service to God. Dead here means unwilling and unable to do anything to contribute to our salvation. Unable even to move towards God in any way. That's what it means to be dead. It doesn't mean that we have no will. It means that our will is so bent on self-service and sin that it can't even look up to God because it doesn't want to and it never will. So in one sense, our will is very free to choose us, to choose our desires. But it is unable to choose God because we are dead. And so that's what dead here means. And so, so much for our contribution. But that's not why I like Ephesians chapter 2. Trust me, that part is not why I like Ephesians chapter 2. Why I like Ephesians chapter 2 is verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we move from our contribution to God's accomplishment. This is what God accomplishes. And and those first two words in, in verse 4 are the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Because the condition of verses 1 through 3 is our condition, the one we were born into. And then you have those magical words, but God. You were dead and deserving of judgment. You were choosing yourself at every turn, but God. But God. I love those words. He tells us what the reason is, the reason for God's contribution, the reason for our justification, the reason for what God does in this section here is uh, because of his loving mercy. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Why did he act? What was the reason of his acting? Did he owe it to us? God, because of his obligation, because we were... No, he, he acts... Out of the reason, it's because of His loving mercy. What spurs God into action? It's rooted in Himself. It's rooted in His own mercy. It's rooted in His own love. And it's called, so that the riches of His mercy, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, He's rich in mercy. He has a wealth and overabundance of it. And out of that, He responds. So our our salvation stems out of who God is. He's being true to himself when he saves us. He's not responding out of obligation. He's being true to himself. So that's the reason is God's loving mercy. Well, look at the timing when we were dead. When we were dead. Not ill, not pretty sick, you know, not not, uh, unconscious even. Dead. We were dead. And a dead body doesn't respond. What, what could we possibly have contributed when we were dead? Remember Jesus and Lazarus. Poor Lazarus had died, been to the tomb four days. Jesus shows up, and what does Jesus do? 
He says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. What do you think the thought process was like for Lazarus as he was choosing whether or not he would come forth? How do you think his will acted to respond to the call of Jesus and say, well, Jesus says I should come forth, which means come to life. What was his thought process? Jesus speaking that command, Lazarus, come forth, made him come to life. That's a picture of us coming to life. That's a picture of what happens in us. And it's a good thing because we were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we had nothing to contribute. And at that moment is when he said, Lazarus, come forth. Brennan, come forth. That's true of us. And that's the picture of the life that he gives in this passage. The timing is when we were dead. What's the cause? What's the root cause? What's the ultimate cause? Well, it's God's grace. It's God's grace. It's the ultimate cause of salvation. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The cause is the grace of God. The cause is the grace of God. For Erasmus, the cause was ultimately, I availed myself of it. God made the offer, but the cause, the final solution, was me availing myself of it. And so they could preach grace, but not grace alone. This is the same picture we have, by the way, in Ezekiel 36, 26, another one of my favorite passages. There are a couple of passages similar to this in the Old Testament where we read God saying, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The stone heart is cold and dead and unresponsive, and so God takes it out and puts in a heart of flesh. God acts on the dead and makes alive. That's God creating life. And so the cause is God's grace, and it is God's grace alone. It is sola gratia. And the instrument is faith. Look down at verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. The instrument is faith. The instrument is the thing which God uses to apply it to our lives. That's the instrument. The cause is God's grace acting. The instrument with which it happens, the tool, the thing by which God causes it to happen is faith. It's faith. And so we don't want to get those switched around, by the way. We are not saved by faith through grace, as if faith were the ultimate cause and God's grace were the instrument that we activated. You see how that's kind of the way the the, uh, medieval Roman Catholic Church was looking at it? That it really rooted in my own faith. God had made his overtures. He had made his offer. And the way that's applied to me is God's grace But what's the ultimate cause of it being applied to me? I chose it. This, by the way, is my picture of the will of God, of of man's will. I, I know it probably looks weird. I'm glad we don't video these things sometimes. The instrument is faith. The cause is God's grace. By grace, you've been saved through faith. So the question is, uh, is this faith a gift of God? Is this faith a gift of God or is that the result of the organ of your will, choosing. 
right? Well, let's, we're going to look at it a couple different ways. First of all, we're going to look at it logically and just think through this passage before we get to the grammar itself, and we will get to grammar. Let's look at the logic. Paul says that the whole process is a gift. The making alive, the raising up, the seating in the heavenly places, it's all a gift, right? And if all of those are elements of God's own doing, but it's faith that makes it yours, how is that of grace? How is that ultimately grace? All of those things are important pieces, but what's the crucial element? What's the one link to make it all happen? The most important part, faith, to make it mine. And if, if that was my role that I played, what portion of the glory do I get? What portion of the credit do I get? What portion of that whole process was not God's grace? It was this portion. If I, paid, if I played any part, God built this whole house. He made the whole thing. And, and all you have to do is access it by your faith. He did this whole thing. It's outside of me unless I choose it. It's outside of me unless I choose it. Unless my will makes that choice, it's outside of me. Well, when I make that choice, what was the deciding factor to make the whole thing happen? And what gets glorified? Maybe it's not even me, but it's my faith that gets glorified. And in that case, justification is is by faith through grace. So that's logically looking at it. The whole puzzle, the whole thing falls apart, which Paul said is by grace you have been saved. It's grace, it's grace. Well, if part of it, the key part is mine, well, it's not really God's grace. It's God's grace. It's certainly not sola gratia. It's God's grace plus what I did. So, so much for the logic of the passage, the grammar of it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. That word this is in the neuter. You don't care. <laughs> but but in, the, in the original language, it's in the neuter. And faith, the word faith, is in the feminine. So can the word this, relative pronoun this, refer back to, which is, which is neuter, can it refer back to the feminine word faith? Maybe it doesn't mean faith. Well, probably what's... Sometimes there, there are times when a New Testament writer will use a, a neuter uh, relative pronoun to refer to a masculine or a feminine uh, uh, antecedent word that it's referring back to. But I think what's going on in this passage is that Paul is saying this whole process, beginning to end, this whole thing, and thus neuter, this whole thing is the grace of God at work, including faith including faith. It is God working to create that faith in us. Remember, we were dead. What does a dead person want? What does a dead person will? What does a dead person choose? Nothing. What did Lazarus want? What did Lazarus choose? Nothing. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. God said, you were dead. I made you alive in Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And so that's the instrument. And there's a, uh, there's a modern uh, kind of an objection that you'll hear that well, while God initiates grace and he prepares the will maybe for subsequent acts of grace, ultimately man must do his part for such grace to be finally successful. Kind of sounds familiar. God did a huge part. He did a really, really huge part. But ultimately... Man must do his part for such grace to be finally successful. And Calvin had an answer to that. The very activity of the will to exercise faith is a free gift of God. That's even the gift of God. Eliminating any possible participation. 
of man's will. Another way of putting that is that God supplies what God demands. That's the instrument, faith. What's the purpose? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The purpose is to spotlight God's grace. By every means possible to spotlight God's grace. That's what he's accomplishing. He wants to put it on display. He wants to demonstrate it in the coming ages. He wants it to be seen everywhere that God's grace is what is working. And then look at the result, the good works in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the result. That's the result. That's not the piece that went before. That's not what earned anything. It's the result, it's the end result even of this whole process of God's grace is good works in our life that he produces. We were created in Christ Jesus for those good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, why is sola gratia important to us? Well, it's gospel, first of all. And to deny sola gratia is really to deny the only gospel that can actually save If I leave a part up to you, if I leave a part up to me, I will drop the ball. And you will drop the ball. Not 90% of the time, not 99% of the time, 100% of the time. I will drop the ball. And so to deny it is to to deny the only gospel that can save. Secondly, sola gratia is important because it takes into account man's true depravity. Romans 3 Really, really bad news. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, really, really bad news. Takes into account all that stuff, gives it its due gravity, and then offers hope. And it's the only way that a person in that condition can have hope. Thirdly, sola gratia is important because it alone, in it alone, do we find assurance of salvation. In sola gratia alone do we find true assurance of salvation. In any other system, our assurance comes down to something that we do. Justification by grace alone tells us that we don't look to anything about our life or our decisions or our heart to assure us that we are right before God. We look solely to the finished work of Christ on our behalf. If you're confused about sola gratia, and and many people are, and at many times we are, You may believe explicitly or you may believe implicitly that you have a role, some role to play in your salvation, and it'll be evident in a couple of ways. First of all, if you're really good at following the rules, if you're good at playing your part, it's going to result in a certain pride and a certain superiority over the rest of us who uh, really have a tough time toeing the line. Because I I look pretty good, after all. And I'm playing my part really well. and, And you should do the same. And so... There's a sense of superiority. That's if you're good at playing by the rules. I'm not very good at playing by the rules. And so the second one is true of me. You'll struggle. If if you deny sola gratia, you will struggle with chronic doubt of your salvation. You will struggle with chronic self-doubt. You will struggle with chronic lack of assurance. Because I have to play a part, and I'm terrible at playing parts. And so depending upon... What kind of person you are, if you play a role, that's typically the way it'll go. And some of us do both of that, you know, because some days we, we look really good. <laughs> and then I'm better than you. And then other days I'm terrible and, and I must not even be a Christian. And, and, and the next day I'm doing fine again and, and I'm better than you and you should be more like me. And so some of us are a little mixed up that way. But to both of you, Paul says this. 
By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your grace. Without your grace, I would be dead in my sins. I did not seek you. I did not want you. I was happy being my own king. I just wanted to figure out how to do it better. And your grace moved in my life. And you saved me. Wretched sinner that I was. Dead in my trespasses and sins. Seeking my own desires. Following the course of this world. Dead. A child of wrath. And by your grace, because of your love, because of your wealth of mercy, you acted. You acted. Finally and fully, completely, like Jesus calling Lazarus forth, you called me forth. And I believed. I was made alive. I was raised up with Christ and I was seated with him in the heavenly places. And so I thank you for your grace. And I pray for each one in here. If there are some in here who don't know you in that way, I pray that you would use even the preaching of the word right now, even if Ephesians uh, chapter 2, that you would use the preaching of your word to fan into flame faith, that they would respond to you, that they would trust Christ, that, that you would move in them, that your grace would overwhelm them. I pray that you would do that even now. I pray that people who came here dead would leave alive raised up with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen and amen. So the Thomases are going to be leaving, and uh, I asked Colleen, RJ, I didn't run this by you, but if you guys wouldn't mind coming up front over here, and we just we just want to gather informally and pray for you guys before you take off. Uh, Sienna told me to do it. So <laughs> other than that, God bless you all. Yes, and there will also be, uh, Chris Maria Ward will be willing to pray uh, with you. If you have a, a, a prayer request, something that you need to pray for, this is a great ministry opportunity. Come and, and they will pray with you. God bless you all. May the grace of God be with you, and you are dismissed. Oh.